Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hi, so here's the thing. People ask me all the time how we manage to produce three free episodes of the podcast every week. Well, obviously, your support as a listener makes a huge difference. But the rocket fuel that keeps the show going is our Patreon page and all of our subscribers there. And we're immensely grateful for your support, whether you can subscribe or not. But if you can, please consider signing up for at least $1 a month or $5 a month on our Patreon page. Depending on your pledge, you're going to get all kinds of bonus content from me and my troop of co-hosts. Plus, it's actually the best place to contact me in person as we continue to post exclusive content like our Shadow Docket shows twice per week, as well as the Friday After Party podcast with me and Kimberly Johnson, and commercial-free versions of the podcast. So get going. Again, that's bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Not great, Bob. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, August 16, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 938 of the Biden-Harris administration, 446 days until the 24th presidential election. You can find me on threads and Instagram at the Bob Seska. Twitter is Bob Seska underscore go, spoutable as Bob Seska, and our Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. It is Rachel Biddecoffer Day on the podcast. The Election Whisperer returns to talk about her forthcoming book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game. This looks like it's going to be a go-to instruction manual for winning the 2024 election and beyond, thus saving democracy in America. Link in the description to pre-order. Plus, we'll get into the impact of Trump's criminal trials on the election, And we'll dig into the scary possibility of a no-labels candidate and what that'll mean for Joe Biden's re-election chances. Meantime, think about supporting this fully independent podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page, bobseskashow.com. Okay, Rachel's one of my favorite guests because she's not a bullshitter. So here she is, not bullshitting. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, I think I hear something. Yep, that's me. Hey, there you are. Hey! (laughs) How the hell are you? It's been a while. It's like a couple of pirates, you know, haven't seen each other's boats in a while. Hey! (laughs) 
I love that. That's great. All right, you know what? I'm a Star Trek fan, so let's change that to Starships. That's good, too. That works. <laughs> okay, awesome. So um, when I saw that you've got a book coming out, I said, you know what? we got to talk to Rachel about her new book, which is, I think it drops in February, right? It does, yep. So it's called Hit Them Where It Hurts, and it looks like a strategy manual for the Democratic Party. Am I right? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. If the first part of the book tries to bring people into the brain of a political scientist, you know, who's uh, studied mass behavior and mm-hmm. public opinion and voting in elections so that so that they understand why they, you know, what, what we're dealing with in terms of messaging and, get, and breaking through on messaging to the electorate. And then the second half is how to do, how to do it well, <laughs> how to do negative partisanship style strategy, which is a real um, innovative um you know, um, step for Democrats because we're yeah. still running campaigns where we are trying to convince swing voters using some, you know, messaging about bipartisanship and getting stuff done, right? Yeah. And then we have a different message that we we send out, you know, to, to a, a cam- campaign we'll send out to their base, you know, the party's base, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to teach people to do is no, 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 no. Do what Republicans do. You got one message. It both pushes swing voters away from the opposition party and make sure that you have strong turnout on your own coalition. And uh, this is how you do it. Interesting. So this is something that we've been talking about since the first time I think you were on the show, which is the whole notion of negative partisanship. And just so I'm clear on the concept strategically, the idea sure. is to instead of chasing after those undecided voters, instead you build up the energy with your base and the people who are already going to vote or maybe are more inclined to vote Democratic? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Not not exactly. So here, let me start by defining what negative partisanship means in in its general sense, okay? (laughs) So we we have partisan identities and and even most leaners who call themselves independents, Mm -hmm. most people who call themselves independents actually have a partisan preference. And if you ask them a follow-up question, do you lean towards one of the two parties? They'll confess that they lean. And then when you look at their voting behavior data, their vote just as reliably in a partisan way as admitted partisans do, okay? okay? Yeah. So so when we talk about negative partisanship, we have that partisan identity and we're motivated by, you know, the things that make us a Democrat, Mm -hmm. right? But what negative partisanship says is, yes, but in that identity, because it's a two-party system, especially in the opposition, is very clearly defined, people are responding to the opposition party. There's negative emotions that are produced by your allegiance in one party and and those are triggered by activities especially when the other party has power over your life like control of the supreme court or control of the presidency so what negative partisanship is in general it's talking about how people are motivated to vote against the other party yeah Okay. Right. And so when we think about what that, what I'm arguing strategically in terms of the book and negative partisanship strategy is instead of trying to sell a candidate to the middle of the electorate using policy appeals, right, mm-hmm. what we should be doing is pushing out messaging that makes swing voters afraid to A, not vote and B, not vote for Democrats, right? So it's messaging that is is really geared at disqualifying the other option, making it very clear what the contrast is between Democrats and Republicans. So it's not just telling people, hey, Democrats are getting you infrastructure and da-da-da-da. It's telling people, and, you know, Republicans are going to let a bridge crush your husband on the way home from work, right? (laughs) So, like, those things. So it's not an either or, right? And uh, and a lot of people do make this this um this mistake about what my argument is. So don't worry about it. It's not saying, hey, ignore the middle of the electorate and then throw red meat out the base. It's saying find red meat issues like the loss of bodily autonomy, right? Yeah. And then use that to wedge swing voters away from the Republican Party, which is, by the way, how Republicans do it. And that's why. You see radicals like J.D. Vance in Ohio beating moderate Dems like Tim Ryan and mm-hmm. J.D. Or, and, um, you know, um, Val Demings losing to Marco Rubio. Those people are not – Marco Rubio is not running ads 
to the middle of the electorate talking about how he loves Democrats and he's going to work with them to get things done and make your life better. No, no, no. What he's telling people is Val Demings is a secret socialist that wants to tur- turn your male children into into girls, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we have to meet that reality. And then, uh, you know, we know that it works because it works so well from for, on the other side, but we especially now know that it works because we've seen it in action in the 2022 election cycle in places like Michigan and Arizona, which ran very heavily um, negative partisanship style strategies. There was a great ad that dropped uh, a few weeks ago, Rachel, and I think you've retweeted it. I think we've all retweeted it at some point. It's the couple having sex in bed, and then there's a Republican sitting right there telling them what they can't do in bed. That was an amazing ad. And I assume this falls into the parameters of the kind of thing you're talking about with this style of campaigning, right? And this is something that we need to do more of. That's exactly right. It's one ad, one message that works for the entire universe of voters you're trying to mobilize and get to vote for you, right? So both the persuasion bucket, as we used to talk about it, and the base mobilization bucket are going to be triggered in and persuaded, right? So it's persuasion that's, you know, Republicans do persuasion. It's just not our style persuasion. They're not trying to sell a product because by the way, politicians are a shitty product, okay? Nobody wants to buy a politician. It's not a pair of Nikes, okay? Like, Uh you know, you're trying to sell a product that is universally disdained, okay? (laughs) So, you know, Republicans have found the path to least resistance really starting in the 2004 cycle with those Mm. gay marriage uh, bans that they used, you know, in 11 states to drive up turnout and enthusiasm for Bush Jr.'s re-election, right? Mm. They figured out a, there's, 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 uh, it's really hard to persuade people to buy something, but it's a lot easier to persuade them to buy it if the alternative is scary and coming to take away their rights. And along those lines, uh, I just thought of this. I've seen some debate on Twitter and elsewhere about whether the abortion issue and the Dobbs decision will trickle down to Democratic candidates. And I I don't see any debate there. I think it's obvious that it will, that it'll obviously help Democrats down the ballot. Am I accurate with that? I mean, it seems like it's obvious. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, like, number one, I would tell people, so Dobbs is such a... I was in Arizona when the Dobbs decision came out and, Mm -hmm. you know, the team that Mm -hmm. I was with at that time, I looked at them and I was like, this is going to change everything (laughs) because for the first time in the, in my lifetime, the moral imperative of the abortion issue has slipped as flip sides. It has long favored, especially because of our shitty messaging, long favored hypothetical innocent babies being murdered by these selfish women, right? Yeah. And that's 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 a mythology that's really easy to percolate in a in a reality in which abortion is is accessible and legal everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. But once you take that away, the victim then flips. It becomes women who have lost bodily autonomy, who are being forced into these crisis pregnancies where they have to face sepsis to go get medical care, right? Yeah, yeah, and then the story yeah. flips from these hypothetical children, which of course who are always going to have this great life, right? They weren't going to be born into poor, poverty-stricken homes with third-generation, you know, domestic violence. They're always, you know, kids that were chartered to go have these wonderful lives if only selfish women hadn't murdered them. <laughs> so, you know, that that is not something, it's not, they're, you know, um, like an activist, right? Oh, the student loan thing's going to be just like, Ro. no. Okay. No. (laughs) Like Roe is a once in a lifetime political opportunity for the Democrats to make the case against Republicans. And it certainly should be the focal point of every campaign from the state legislature. You know, and Virginia's doing those off year elections. I'd be defining the entire effort to hold the state legislature as a needed thing to prevent Republicans from banning abortion in Virginia. They have a Republican governor. It's a very easy argument to make. And the power of Roe, women don't get over losing their bodily autonomy. I, I guess it takes a woman to know that, but you know, hmm. we're not, the anger from Roe is, is going to continue to build, it's not going to dissipate. So this fall, it's an off-year election, of course, but there is that ballot initiative in Ohio that would legalize reproductive rights, legalize abortion in that state again. So that being on the ballot, is that going to drive out more Democrats to vote? It seems like it would. But again, as I was saying a second ago, there are some people like, nah, not really. 
But I, I, I just, I, I can't see anything other than well, more I mean, and more Democrats who's turning out. No, not really. Is yeah. clearly not, you know, um, a good analyst, especially <laughs> no. in terms of voter behavior data, right? Yeah. But here's the thing: like, if I was Sherrod Brown, I would say, yeah, yeah, no. Number one, you know, you're going to get a burst of turnout amongst the Democrats' coalition. Which again, I'll never use the word base because when I think of a party's base, I think of their committed partisans, and then I think of those independent leaners that are part of that coalition, right? Mm-hmm. And, and independents are the ones who have turnout, real serious turnout drop-offs in between presidential elections and other elections. So having Roe to juice that segment of the Democrats coalition in a state like Ohio is really important for Sherrod Brown, who's going to be facing the toughest battle he's ever had in a realigning, de-aligning from the Democrats state, okay? But he can't just count on it on it helping him, right? In other yeah. words, there could be people that will walk into the ballot booth in, in Ohio, vote yes to preserve abortion, and then vote for his Republican opponent. He needs to make sure that in his campaign strategy, he is defining himself as the party of bodily freedom and the opponent as, you know, this um, nefarious, you know, murdering GOP nightmare yeah. and if he doesn't make that connection for voters then you then we know we know it from seeing many and i talk about this extensively in the book you can see elections where minimum wage is voted on or, or pot legalizations voted on in a state and it passes but like the state elects a whole slate of republican legislators right mm-hmm. and yeah. governors right we've seen it in florida we've seen that in, in many many states so you know the benefit of abortion isn't just a naturally accrue. I mean, some of it will, but if he really wants to guarantee his reelection, he's going to hug that abortion issue. He's not going to do what Tim Ryan did. Oh, I'm not really one of those Democrats, and I like to work with everybody, and every <laughs> both parties are a problem. That is not how you're going to win. Yeah. That's the old model. It's been losing for us since the 2010 midterms, especially in the Senate races. What he should be doing is, I'm Sherrod Brown. I will protect your freedom my Republican opponent will take it away. I just wonder why it's taken so long for the Democratic Party to use the tactic of uh, inserting ballot initiatives in order to drive up turnout. Because, as you were saying, it was one of the primary strategies employed by Karl Rove and the Republicans back in 2004 with all of those same-sex marriage bans on the ballot, which I think helped to propel George W. Bush to a second term. So why hasn't the Democratic Party tried this sort of thing before, especially knowing that it's got the majority on guns, it's got the majority on abortion rights and other more social issues that can overcome the stranglehold on state legislatures by Republicans. Why hasn't that happened until recently? Or or have I just missed it? No, no, you're 100% right, right? And then like in... I mean, and then even when they put these ballot initiatives in for partisan gerrymandering or minimum wage or all this shit that's really popular and it ends up passing, you know, 56, 70, 67, 70 percent, right? Mm-hmm. They have not tied that to the Democratic Party's brand, brand up, and, 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 and simultaneously brand down the Republicans on those issues, right? So we walk – I walk through that pretty pretty clearly in the book, like how – you know, how it is that every gun voter in America knows which party to vote for, yeah. but yet pot smokers, minimum wage smokers, right? There's a segment <laughs> of them, a segment of them that don't, they don't know that like, oh, I should vote for Democrats for this stuff. And I'm voting for Republicans. They actually are hostile to this stuff. I'm voting yes for for pot legalization, but voting for Republicans that hate pot. Why am I doing that? Because we're not making it easy for them. So, you know, it's one of the many things that we've left unaddressed since about, you know, really their infrastructure project is about 50 years old. But even if you take off that first 20 and only look at like the 2000, you know, 1990s on, they start to build a lot of infrastructure and start to do strategic, the strategic shift that I'm trying to sell the party on now and, you know, that's when they start dominating, especially these down-ballot elections. In 2010, they won a 1,000 state legislative seats, right? Yeah, yeah. How did they do it? Well, the book lays out exactly how they did it and why we need to do it. And these transitions have been very slow. But I will tell you, Bob, the, the big problem is that the most um, you know, established consultants, campaign teams, the ones that, you know, a big marquee Senate race are going to turn to – these are the folks that are, are really locked in on, on this old strategy and getting them to transition, 
you know, it, it has been a, a difficult battle. If, if you'll remember right heading into 22, you know, maybe a month before Election Day, they, you know, a group of these folks put out a, uh, an op-ed about how, oh, Democrats have made such a mistake focusing on Roe, and now it's going to cost them the 22 midterms that we were always going to lose anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, now, now it's going to, and, and, you know, I went right to Twitter. I was like, nope, wedge <laughs> Roe everywhere, right? Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. like, as long as those folks still have the ears of our top candidates and our top party leaders you know, it's 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 a it's a fight to get this transition. And that's why I really think this book is going to be a major, major step towards pushing people strategically and uh, valid initiatives to drive coalitional turnout and push swing voters away. It's, it's such an obvious strategy that we've left sitting there for a long time. And now we're starting to recognize. Right. So where's the line? And this is kind of a loaded question, Rachel, but where's the line in terms of drawing a balance between making sure that there's heavy turnout, that we're uh, feeding a message to voters that resonates and does all the things that you want it to do. But is there a point at which you start to get diminishing returns where you begin to lose moderate voters? And and I, I assure you, I'm not defending moderate voters. I'm just saying that at some point they may go, well, the Democrats are getting too red meatish and too leftist, so uh, maybe I'll vote for an independent candidate or maybe I'll vote for a Republican. Um, yeah, maybe if you structured your campaign on stupid shit like student loan forgiveness, right? Those are those are red meat like issues, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the what things that the progressive base think is popular, you know, not necessarily what I'm talking about, right? Mm. Talking about wedging economic records, right? The Republicans have ruled the roost with Reaganomics for 50 years, and, and yep. now we can prosecute the case against it, right? Yeah, it's decimated yeah. the American middle class, decimated our infrastructure, left our school system trailing the rest of the world. So, you know, starve the beast, right, <laughs> has been uh, an abject failure, and we should be putting it right at the feet of Republic of the Republican Party, especially in rural America, which has really been decimated under Republican control. So, you know, there is some difference between like, you know, maybe a progressive outfit that wants to, you know, issue advocacy. What I care about is winning elections and only care if winning yeah. elections because you can't make policy unless you have power and you can't go up against a propaganda machine with comms. You have to go up against a propaganda machine with, with propaganda. Now, as for turning off swing voters, here's what I'll tell you, Bob. We haven't seen a Republican run in moderate campaign now mm -hmm. in in over a decade. I yep. mean, Glenn Youngkin certainly did not run a moderate campaign. He made up an issue about CRT and race in schools and wedged that. It's a stupid issue that nobody had even heard of, managed to make it the most important election in Virginia in the 2021 cycle, right, through mm -hmm. issue framing and, and agenda setting and their right-wing media empire, they turned something no one had ever heard of into a defining issue in a gubernatorial election, right? And that certainly didn't cost Glenn Youngkin any vote. So like the way that moderate or independent voters, even the ones that we think about are as pure independent, they don't lean towards one party or the other. These are not folks that are generally sitting around looking at each candidate's website and trying to choose one that is median voter Anthony Downs aligned with them on policy. That is not how moderate voters are thinking. Yeah. They're based on it's based on brand and image. And if all they hear is Democrats are socialists and they want to, you know, per, you know, they're they're pedophiles that want to groom your kids into be sexual deviants <laughs> and you're trying to talk about infrastructure, good <laughs> luck. Okay? Good luck. Right. So are you going to plan to send a copy to every Democratic Party campaign strategist Rachel I mean are you going to get this circulated to the people who need to see this kind of strategy I mean I'm sure you've got many colleagues who are lining up for campaign jobs at this point will they uh, avail themselves of your recommendations yeah, well, you know, you can you can uh, lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? <laughs> That's also true. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> so, guess it's wishful no. thinking. I, I hope I hope they take it to heart. I hope they use some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, here's the problem, right? I think that the book speaks for itself. I think anybody that understands the contemporary political environment, you know, it's taken a long time. I really I cut my teeth in pushing Nate Silver and Wasserman and those guys to more. Um, embrace and understand how partisanship, hyper-partisanship and polarization mm. were impacting other things like economic indicators, in-party, out-party status, whatever, right? So getting people to understand that, you know, um, 
you know, these that the electorate is different than it was when Bill Clinton ran in 1992 and how we should be talking to them now is is, you know, I think pretty paramount. But for me, the hurdle is, can I get it on enough folks that are especially these big, big folks running these big Senate and gubernatorial races? Can I get it in front of their eyeballs? And a lot of that's going to come down to how hard my friends in the media and, you know, um, people who support this this strategic shift help me get the book on people's radar. So, you know, I'm really glad to be doing the interview today. So how will these trials, uh, upcoming trials, we've got four of them lined up, uh, each involving Donald Trump. How is that going to impact the 2024 election? I know there are a lot of super early polls, which I don't put a lot of stock in those. One, because, as I said, they're super early. And also, the facts haven't been reported, at least to the point where they resonate, uh, among enough voters. So there's no real way to make a hard and fast ruling on what happens in November 2024 based on something that is, whatever that is, 14, 16 months away. But just looking ahead as best you can, how are these trials going to change the perception of, say, for example, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump? I mean, you know, Republicans. So here's the thing. Yes. Now these indictments are no longer hypothetical. They're, mm-hmm. they're actually all in the bank. Right. Yeah. And I've long argued that we would have to wait until fall, late fall, November to see if if truly Republican voters are willing to take the risk of nominating a, a quadruple indicted you know, liability candidate, a mm. candidate who with they know swing voters have rejected at least once, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 through like proxy uh, three times, right? So um, I think it comes down to you know whether or not they start. There's there's going to be people are going to start to get nervous in the Republican Party. I have no <laughs> doubt. I mean, obviously the there's a segment now that's already been nervous, but I think like among like the rank and file voters, especially when they start looking at these swing state polls and it shows Biden beating Trump in every one of them, I would assume that even with the you know extra weight that they apply to non college educated voters now to account for these polling errors, da 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 da. I don't think the polling's going to look great for Mr. Trump. I think the problem is is that his message is reelect me so I can pardon myself and Joe Biden's message is not that, right? <laughs> right, so, right, right? Like, you know, Donald Trump is an extraordinarily problematic uh nominee. Everybody smart in the Republican Party knows that today. Can they convince the rest of the party, or at least a chunk of it? We'll find out. Well, we'll know in November. But, yeah. you know, as a strategist, whose job it is going to be to win the presidency and keep this fascist rising fascist movement out of the most important part of power they could have, which is the executive agencies. They're going to already telling us they're going to come in and purge all the civil servants out and replace them with political hacks. And once you have that, that's game over. Right. So if, if the goal is to win in 2024 and I had to pick my player for the Republican side, I'd want to go against Donald Trump. He's a hot mess. He's kryptonite. And it, the argument makes itself about threat to democracy. You don't even have to really reach, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but that's you know. That being said, you know, I don't want it to be him. I, I just want him to go away. I don't care if he's easier to beat. If we could get him <laughs> off the ticket, that'd be great, right? But uh, at the end of the day, I don't know that, that, that when you say all this stuff doesn't matter. I have to tell you, Bob. Most of the American electorate don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. They don't the, the part that's voting Republican and Republican primaries, they don't know any of it because they never see any of it in their media. Nope. And they don't trust any other media because they've been told that every other information source is invalid, CDC, NASA, whatever, right? You can't trust any information source that isn't MAGA, MAGA. Okay, Mm -hmm. and so you've got that segment and you and you have to wonder, Okay, well, why isn't this moving stuff? Well, we saw the charges in this indictment in the last couple of indictments. We read through the indictment. We understand the severity and the significant evidentiary like uh, load that's that supports all these allegations. Right. In their world, they never read any of that. They're not looking at it. Instead, they're relying on on Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity to tell them it's a witch hunt. And they're trying to politicize Donald Trump's speech. They're trying to criminalize free speech. Right. So like, it's not like these people are assessing his criminal liability and making a, a sound judgment off of that. And yeah. People should keep that in mind. So is it going to hurt or help Trump to have TV cameras in the courtroom in Fulton County? That seems to be the thing. The reason we, 
Yeah, the reason, I mean, so you might say, oh, you know, oh, we don't want to give Trump the ratings he wants. Well, yes, you do, because they are going to lie about everything that happens in that trial. Mm -hmm. And the more exposure and sunlight we can put into those proceedings, like the George Floyd trial, the better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we definitely want cameras in all the courtrooms if we can get them. But the federal court system would require a personal intervention from the chief justices of the Supreme Court. I still don't think that that's out of the question. I think it's possible that we may see that because, you know, at the end of the day, the truth is, is, has got to be on American televisions in some capacity, especially given, you know, their, their tendency to gaslight and lie. Yeah. And you mentioned this a, a couple of seconds ago, Rachel, but I want to go back to it. Do you think the Republican Party is going to slowly start to back away from Trump over the next 11 months? I think the convention starts on July 15. Between now and then, uh, is there going to be a slow evolution away from Trump because of all this? Or is he pretty much the presumptive nominee at this point? I mean, I, I've I've always been hesitant to announce it a done deal because I'm an expert <laughs> in presidential nominations. Okay, yeah, yeah. And like trying to convince people who listen to the Bob Seska show or follow Rachel Bittacoffer <laughs> on Twitter that actually normal Americans ha- are, have paid zero, and I do mean zero attention to yes. this primary. Okay, the reason why Nikki Haley and and uh, Tim Scott and these guys polls in the at that one or two percent is literally because no one knows who they are. Even Republican <laughs> primary voters who are more informed and engaged than your average voter, any primary voter is a more informed and engaged voter than your average voter. Even those guys don't know who the hell these people are. Mm-hmm. Okay? They know who Mike Pence is because he was the vice president and Trump tried to hang him on Jan 6. Okay? They know who Trump is. And because of all the media coverage out of Florida for DeSantis, which was was very smart to do because it made him compare it, uh, not not comparable to Biden, uh, uh, to um, Trump and Pence and name ID, but at least put him in the running to register on name ID. OK, mm-hmm. so if you go and dig down into these surveys and you look at, at the percentage of voters who are say they're going to vote in the Republican primary, who also say they've never heard of or haven't had enough heard enough to have an opinion about Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, then you understand a little better about how amorphous we are in the dead time, the summer before the election. Trump declared really early to try to evade federal prosecution Hmm. and started the calendar even earlier. But usually in this dead time between, you know, now and, and the fall when these debates finally start going, we could see significant change as people tune in. We just don't know yet. And I I can't help but to think that the Republican bench is far weaker than I think a lot of the political press is willing to admit because their front runner, the Republican front runner, impeached twice, lost his reelection campaign, lost his midterm in 2018, as you well know, Rachel, because you predicted it, also lost with his name essentially on the ballot in 2022. Horrible midterm for the Republicans, given the fact that they were supposed to win big time in that one. He presided over 400,000 American COVID deaths. He's facing 91 felony counts revolving around both election fraud and espionage. And yet the other Republicans can't even come close to this guy. It's not even a, a horse race at this point. But that says so much about the lack of charisma on the Republican side, doesn't it? I mean, it does. Again, I think what you're when you're when you were looking at the difference between Republic, the Republican universe is so different because it's an information silo. OK, yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like none of those people know what, you know, they all think <laughs> the covid vaccine killed more people than covid, Bob. OK, all right. You know, if so think about that. Think about mm. like what that means. If you've got a chunk of people make up maybe 20 million voters. OK, mm. And they're convinced that actually the COVID vaccine is more deadly than COVID, right? Is it really any surprise that they that they're you know aligned to this Trump cult like figure? I don't think so. Yeah, it's not like they're backing away from him because he's damaged. They love him because he's damaged. Yeah, no, they 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 think in their world he won the last election, right? Yeah. So like, why wouldn't he want to nominate this guy if only we hadn't come up with nine million extra votes? 
Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> so if you don't, I mean, that's the problem when you come up with a big lie and then everybody, I mean, Trump can, could have done the big lie, but the assist that he got from all the other party members acting like it could be true, right? Mm. That what they have done is they've really screwed themselves because how do you convince people not to nominate a loser if you never acknowledge that he lost? <laughs> That's right? a great point. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly, right? Yeah. So yeah. like, you know, I mean, now they're sitting here marinating in the in the, you know, negative uh blowback of the big lie because they're trying to convince people if we nominate Donald Trump we're going to lose and the and the people that they lied to and created this mass psychosis of of election fraud with are like, but he won the first time. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so it's a very hard argument to make that he's unelectable because, you know, they don't think he lost the last election, Bob. I guess they still need to, at some point, acknowledge the fact that they've got to win some votes beyond just the base. I mean, it seems like maybe some sort of tethering to reality would help them. But you know what? If they're going to completely ignore all of that, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. They can completely commit, like, party-wide suicide if they need to. Okay yeah, the, with the me. The lack yeah. of tethered to reality amongst the Republican Party is our greatest threat, right? Yeah. But it is also a huge strategic advantage in terms of the 2024 cycle and being able to define the Democratic Party as the same party, you know, versus this Republican cult, dangerous Republican cult. Where does the Republican Party end up after all of this? Because it seems like it's headed for some sort of split, some sort of uh, deep schism that breaks apart the party and into two, maybe two halves or something happens along the way where there's a big uh, realignment in how the party operates. doesn't seem like they can continue on this trajectory. It seems like a trajectory of self-destruction, unless I'm completely wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, if they could nominate anyone other uh, over Trump, they would have be competitive in 2024, okay? So, you know, nominating Trump to me is the best way to guarantee Joe Biden wins next time, okay? And so so but, just, like, just to stop on that point real quick, I want to believe that's true. But I get nervous because of 2016 when I, myself, so many other people were going, hey, this is great, Donald Trump. They're going to laugh him off the national stage. There's no way he's going to be president. There's no way he's going to get the domination, much less be president. And then suddenly here we are with this monster in the White House. But so yeah, that's yeah. the only reason. See, I didn't I have that problem, Bob. OK, at all, okay? All right. I all thought because here's the thing, like I tell Democrats this all the time. If you want to win a state like Ohio. You know, don't run Tim Ryan, run uh, LeBron James, okay? Yeah, yeah. Celebrity, right? And then, and, and, and like, there's no one that pushes back harder on this idea of celebrity candidate than Democrats. Oh, no, that's the Americans wouldn't respect that. I'm like, bullshit, ask Ronald Reagan, dude. <laughs> right? Like, well, ask, ask Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Yeah. Like, you, you know, so like, this is the clay you're working with. So when Donald Trump came down the escalator and then like wasn't laughed off the stage immediately and he started to get some traction in that early nomination data, I, unlike everybody else, thought this would be the worst possible nominee for us. Okay. He's a celebrity. He's got all this, you know, cult dem demog you know, demog uh, demagogue behavior. Mm -hmm. Like that, I didn't see Trump as a weak candidate. Okay, and but to push back a little bit and to make you afraid at the same time. Oh, good. We would not be sitting with Donald Trump. We never would have seen Donald Trump win that electoral college if it hadn't been for the third party defections that mm -hmm. we were we suffered big time from in 2016, okay? Because we had the bruising primary. That's why you don't want a primary. <laughs> you have to have one mm -hmm. because it makes people mad and then they don't vote for the candidate, right? And when you look at the, the results in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Trump did not win a majority of the vote in those states to win them. He was at 46, 47%. The problem was that Clinton was at 43 mm. and 6, 7% went to third party candidates in these states. That's an astounding amount of third party defection. So yes, Donald Trump did technically win in 2016 by losing the popular vote by 3 million, but it's because he thread a needle like a five card you know, rummy hand, like the the conditions had to align perfectly for that to happen. 
And then when you look at his post-16 record, it's all loss, 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 right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, like, do I, Donald, like, these swing voters are imagistic. They're going to be pushed to and fro, you know, generally in-party suffers from swing voters. Swing voters like to break for the opposition party, and Joe Biden is the in-party. That's why I said some other candidate, DeSantis, Scott, Haley, whoever, right, mm. would be a better nominee for the Republicans up against Joe Biden because they'd be more competitive to win that persuasion argument in the middle. As long as Democrats aren't out there, you know, and I know the Biden team gets this, they they have very much, you know, moved into into a, a more modern strategy of appealing to the electorate. Um, I think they get it. But what we need is the Senate races, especially in the House races, to be doing the same thing, running one message, one messaging strategy that is both driving coalitional turnout to the polls, but also pushing swing voters away from Republicans and towards the Democrats. And if we do that, then they cannot win unless, you know, somehow this no label spoiler really, you know, comes to fruition. And that's why so many of us, you know, my friends at Third Way, um, and others, you know, the Lincoln Project, we've all been pushing very hard about the dangers of this no labels third party candidacy. And that will be the thing that keeps me up at night, regardless of who the nominee is, but especially if it's Donald Trump. So let's say it's RFK Jr. He's the nominee for the no labels party. Uh, who does that impact more, the Republicans or Democrats? I mean, on the surface, it seems like it would hurt the Democrats more than the Republicans. But any third party mm. candidate will hurt us more. Any okay. third party candidate, doesn't matter if it's Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, Robert Kennedy, anyone will hurt us more. And why? Because when you look at mass behavior, and I laid this out in 2020 with a national survey using Howard Schultz, right, because that was when he was teasing an independent run, to show when you look at how polarization presents between partisans, Democrats and Republicans, it's very different. The Democratic coalition is much less ideologically rigid. Its modal ideology is moderate. The modal ideology in the Republican Party is conservative, okay? In the Democratic Party, it's moderate. And when when I looked in 2020 to to just ask hypothetically, how many, who would you vote for in the two-person matchup? And then I asked, who would you vote for the, you know, uh, Biden or Biden, Trump, and then uh, an independent third-party candidate? You see right away for every one voter that Donald Trump would lose, we'd lose five voters from the Democratic ticket. God. Yeah. And that's not going to change, guys. Like it's it's that's why no um, third way and Lincoln Project and I have all been pushing and trying to make this very clear. It doesn't matter who they put forward. If they have a big budget and they get in these swing states, it will hurt us more because we're the kind of people that are most attractive, attracted to their argument. Okay, like I like their argument. Like if I was to divorce myself from me and just pretend to be some average voter, I'm I'm pretty moderate, you know, type of person in temperament and in policy. Like, you know, that's very attractive sounding. And because we are less hyperpartisan than the Republican coalition is, and that includes their indies, indie leaners, it is a very, very, very big problem for us to have this third party general election independent. Are there tactics being set in motion in terms of how to overcome or minimize the impact of a no-labels candidate? It, Rachel, there's this thing every time there's a, another big election where it feels like the Democratic Party is, and I always compare it to Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. You got this giant fish, and you're headed toward Election Day, and as you approach Election Day, more and more of that fish is being picked away by sharks. So whether it's voter ID, voter intimidation, some of these uh, uh, gerrymandering uh, strictures that are applied to uh, elections, on top of now third-party candidates that could take votes away from Democrats, is there some technique, is there some sort of strategy being implemented now that could minimize that damage? Well, I mean, you know, I have to give the hats off to, to groups like Third Way, which have been taking the lead on this and really been, were the first people to ring the alarm against, you know, I think they're, <laughs> they're, they're Third Way and, and the other team, you know, the other group is No Labels. They're both designed to move Americans past the two-party system, but Third Way understands the risk that we're facing from a Republican administration in these conditions. We're not going to see 
rule of law. We're going to see pardons for Trump and his co-conspirators. We're going to see, you know, the the sweeping out of civic civil servants, non-political servants out of the government, out of these bureaucracies and, and um, really significant changes, right? So Third Way gets that and they've been trying hard to to throw up hurdles. But unfortunately, you know, you have you can only do what, what is allowed by the courts and the legal system. And you know, they tried to keep third way from or uh, no labels from being able to submit a candidate in Arizona on that general election ballot and that was just turned down. So there you can't block no label or um yeah, no labels from the ballot access. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, it really is to me the worst case scenario probably would be a Joe Manchin style candidate. That would be the <laughs> very worst thing that could happen to us. How do you get the case that a vote for no labels is a vote for Donald Trump? How, how do you make that stick? I see so many contrarians, especially uh, like uh, bro progressives, you know, the sort of the Greenwald, uh, Michael Tracy types who don't ever seem to grasp that no matter how many times you explain the math and how that works out with a, a third party candidate taking away votes from Democrats, thus helping the Republicans win. No matter how you try to thread that needle, it never seems to get through. Should we just write those people off and say, well, we're never going to be able to convince them? Or is there some sort of strategy for telegraphing the fact that it's either you vote for the Democrat or it's the end of democracy in the United States? Exactly. Well, I mean, that's what I argue, right? Like you you would want to spend some money on digital, you know, advertising, micro-targeted at that pool. But here's the thing, Bob, that helps us. Like, so there's going to be a pool of those voters and how big it is depends, right? It was one and a half percent during Ralph Nader in Florida, and that was enough, obviously, to make a difference in Florida. But we're talking about 6% in Wisconsin in 2016. I mean, that's a, that's, it's just unprecedented to have Mm -hmm. that much affection, right? I think that, the reason that happened is because of the disunity from the open Democratic primary. And that's why I've been trying to explain to people, look, you want Joe Biden to run. You want him to run. <laughs> you don't want yeah. a Democratic primary. This is not a time to do that because that pool of how big that defection number is going to be, and it's pretty fixed at one and a half percent. I think those are the people, like you mentioned, that one individual that are never going to change no matter what, right? But it could go up to 6% if we had another bruising primary fight. And and one of the best advantages we have right now is that's exactly what the Republican Party is going through. They're having their 2016 fight right now. The bases of the two camps, DeSantis camp versus the Trump camp, has been getting nasty, very nasty, mm-hmm. right? And as that percolates for months, you know, it helps us. We want... MAGA to be divided and an and a open primary is the way to do that best. So, you know, at the end of the day, we made a good progress towards avoiding a, a third party defection problem just by not having an open primary on the Democratic side. How do you think social media is going to impact this particular election? And I'm speaking specifically of what Elon Musk has been doing with Twitter. Like, for example, what's your take on Elon's thing with Trump? Uh, Why did he defy that subpoena costing him $350,000 solely in defense of Trump? Why is he uh, platforming Russian propagandists with this Twitter blue subscription service uh, augmenting their reach on Twitter beyond a, a normal account? Why is all of that going on? And is it specific to the 2024 election or is it just incidental to what Elon is doing? Oh, no, it's not incidental at all. I mean, certainly you can't look at what Elon's done with Twitter and not argue that he's not making changes to assist the Republican Party. Right, <laughs> right. right. Yes. And it's not just Trump. I mean, it's the whole thing, right? And it's a big problem, dude. I mean, so like when you think about like the things, you know, there's things like, I, you know, I have a spreadsheet and shit that I track for elections. And some of those are things like, you know, that are fixed. And then some things are like, you know, they're like, oddball things and and having a Lex Luthor take over the most important communications hub on the internet <laughs> is certainly one of those deviating, you know, things that keep me up at night. Yeah. I think it is, is you know, no doubt going to assist Republicans. It already is assisting them. They have much better reach on Twitter than Democrats do because of these algorithms. I mean, I never hardly ever see the people I used to follow in my tweets. I see now one right-wing influencer after the other, right? So you have to assume that that's that's pretty reflective of the broader 
Twitter experience, and it, and it is definitely a huge problem. It's unfortunate that you know we allow a, a, a billionaire who's made it clear he has a political agenda to buy one of the biggest communication hubs in the country, and then you know have free reign over over manipulating that. And uh, you know, I think this Trump warrant thing is really just another example of that. It's very disturbing. So the forthcoming book, once again, is Hit Him Where It Hurts. It's available. Is there a specific date in February, Rachel, when it drops? The 5th or 6th. It's open for pre-order now. You can Google okay. uh, Rachel Bittacoffer and Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game is the full title of the book. Awesome. So, um, you know, there's going to be an audio version that I get to record, hopefully. So. Hey, awesome. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Yeah, and then the you know the hardcover, and but I think it's February fifth or sixth when those um, will be released, and uh, obviously it's going to be, you know, it's it's taking my brain and all the things that it knows and trying to share it with everybody else so we can do better strategy. So I've got a link in the description at bobseska.com. Just find this episode dated eight sixteen twenty three. Click that link, scroll on down, and you can find links to pick up Rachel Bittacoffer's book or pre-order it. Plus, you can find it. It's a pinned tweet at Rachel Bittacoffer's Twitter account or X account, whatever the hell we're calling it. Uh, and that's at uh, Rachel Bittacoffer on Twitter. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you again. Great catching up. As always. Thanks, Bob. We'll talk to you again next time. All righty. All right. Bye-bye. Hiding in dark makeup with giant sunglasses. Happy to go home each night and snuggle with cats. But his ringtone is the soundtrack to my summer. I can't hold a straight thought when he's holding my hand. i